0: Social media influencers hold an increasing amount of sway over the public. Well, why is that? What makes them so, well, influential, especially to young people?
1: Their expertise is their authenticity. It's the thing that keeps this industry growing and thriving and changing. These people are able to construct themselves, you know, construct their public personas as. Uh, someone who's credible, someone who's believable because they're authentic.
0: That's author Emily Hund. Besides writing the book, The Influencer Industry, The Quest for Authenticity on Social Media, she's also a research affiliate at the Center on Digital Culture at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. And I'm Daryl Warland, your host for Is That a Fact? Hund is here to talk about how influencers came to dominate our social media feeds and how much we can trust the authenticity they've staked their livelihoods on. How did social media influencers come to be?
1: There were a lot of different things going on in the first decade of the 21st century that enabled influencers, as we now understand them, to begin to really gain traction. The internet had become a sort of commercial space that you know many people were using, and there were platforms like Blogger and WordPress that enabled uh, more and more people to create their own websites, their own blogs, and publish their own ideas online in a way that hadn't been possible on the internet before then these sorts of platforms made it possible for more people to start sort of representing themselves online and communicating to the public in that way. And then we also had obviously the rise of social media, uh, you know, the launch of Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the early and mid 2000s was like a really robust time for this new type of platform that enabled this sort of new way of communicating online and, and using the internet. And there was so much excitement and optimism around these platforms, too. You know, there was all this big talk about how these platforms were going to connect the world and they were going to enable everyone to have a voice and they were going to democratize everything, especially democratize culture. There was also, of course, an ongoing sort of crisis in journalism, which motivated a lot of writers and aspiring journalists and established journalists in some cases to start blogging start creating their own content online um, in hopes of gaining a wider audience. And at the same time, the advertisers who fund our entertainment industries, they were looking for better return on their investment. As newspapers and print media were were struggling in this time, advertisers saw that these people who were creating digital content could offer really specific niche audiences, really easily measured results. And so advertisers were really interested and they started putting their money in this space. And then the biggest thing is the economic crisis in the late 2000s, you know, the Great Recession, this was a moment where millions and millions of people lost their jobs, the sort of security that I think many people felt in their planned career paths was shattered. And pair that with this optimism at the time with these new social media platforms that were saying, come here, create content, find your audience, you know, have a voice. That was really alluring in, a, in this moment when a lot of people were disenfranchised and had lost their incomes. And so that drew even more people to the space. And in that moment, in those first years during and after the recession is when we see the influencer industry really start to gain traction and become a sort of recognizable entity that we still are are dealing with today.
0: And can you kind of describe briefly the spectrum of influencers that we might encounter on social media today?
1: Name your topic, and I think you will find an influencer working in that area. The space has expanded to such a degree that it's really hard to put a net around it. 10, 15 years ago, when I started researching this space, it was a lot smaller. We had the sort of blogger, journalistic sort of column. We had the so-called mommy bloggers people who were creating content around parenting and motherhood and things like that. And then we had fashion bloggers, obviously, which grew to become, you know, a huge juggernaut. And then beauty, travel, these kinds of things. And then over time, the industry shifted a lot, you know, over the course of the 2010s and it became more financially lucrative to not sort of put yourself in a column and to say, oh, I'm like a lifestyle influencer. Um, because then, you know, at the time when Instagram was king and you're, you know, you're trying to mo- make money off of these visual posts, it's like, well, rather than just saying I'm a fashion blogger and making money off my outfit, I'm going to be a lifestyle influencer and I'm going to make money off my outfit. The uh, food I'm eating, the dishes on my table, you know, the leash I'm using for my dog, uh, all of that. Does that mean you can then partner
0: with more brands across more areas?
1: Yes. So it provides more opportunity for brand partnerships across different sectors. And it also was really tied up in the technical means of influencing at the time as well like to know it and re- reward style are one example of what I call in the book technologies of self commercialization. So there are these tools that allow people to commercialize their self presentations on social media. And so how they work is you basically earn a commission off of everything that you feature that, that a follower sells. And so if you're using like to know it or reward style links, again, it's like better link everything in the picture and make a commission off of everything rather than just saying, I do travel, I do beauty. And so that kind of pushed everything that like really expanded the industry. And then in more recent years, just the the shifting cultural and political tides of the last three or four years in particular have just expanded the industry even more to the point where there are people, like I said, creating content about any topic <laughs> that you can name.
0: So are influencers experts? Because the way you're describing it, I, you can't be an expert in all things. So to me, what you're describing, and you know, I'm sure I follow influencers. I mean, I, I do. Some of them, though, are more niche, right? Like they maybe focus on a specific topic or, you know, parenting, for example. But they're experts, they have credentials. If you're a lifestyle influencer, you can't be an expert in everything. I would find that confusing as a follower.
1: There are some influencers who are experts, but not all Influencers are most influencers are are not trained experts in the fields that they claim to inhabit So
0: what's the value they bring?
1: Their expertise is their authenticity So that's what this all really comes down to in and the It's the thing that keeps this industry growing and thriving and changing These people are able to construct themselves, you know, construct their public personas as uh, someone who's credible, someone who's believable because they're authentic really goes back to to the those early years, you know, those formative years of the influencer industry, because at that time in the early 2000s, it was an acute moment of sort of the of the bonds of social trust breaking in a variety of ways. So the influencer industry kind of emerges riding this high of like, we're not like all of them. You know, we're not like the, you know, the mainstream media who you can't trust for X, Y, Z reason. We're not like the, any, any of these, you know, established institutions. We are just people who are just like you. And we're just sharing what we know to be true and uh, sharing what we like and, and things like that. And so that was really alluring. I like to point out, too, when we we're talking about the early years of the influencer industry, that it's not like these early influencers were lying <laughs> in most cases, because the reality is they were creating a new industry out of nothing. They they didn't know, you know, they couldn't predict what was what we were going to be living in today at, at that time. They really were, for the most part, just using these new platforms, figuring things out sharing what they knew to be true, sharing their expertise when relevant. And then when advertisers came knocking, then they were able to monetize and then things, you know, just exploded from there. So it's not like it was all a lie, (laughs) because it, it really wasn't. But once they once that first sort of generation of influencers established themselves sort of proved that this could be a career something you could make money on you can sustain yourself by creating content and working with advertisers directly then you know we had an influx of people coming to social media with that express goal in mind and as the space became saturated Authenticity sort of gets disconnected from the actual, you know, lived experience of the creator and becomes something that needs to be cultivated and communicated in really predictable, easily digestible ways so that the influencer can gain more visibility and rise to the top.
0: How aware do you think most people are that influencers are paid to endorse products and that these are like paid partnerships that they're doing.
1: For a long time, I I think people weren't that aware of the fact that influencers were paid or how they were getting paid. I think awareness has been growing in the, in the last several years, but it's still not at the level of detail that I would like for the public to have. Because we see, you know, if you're scrolling through your Instagram or TikTok feed, you see influencers, you might see that they've tagged a brand or they've said, you know, hashtag partnership or or whatever. And then you might, you know, understand, OK, they they're working with this brand in some way. But there is a huge complex enterprise behind this content that we see in our feeds and it's not as simple as a brand approaching an influencer or an influencer approaching a brand and saying hey let's have an exchange of services here there are to begin with you know from the you know the user end of the content that you're seeing influencers have to present themselves to us in like I said, patterned, recognizable ways in order to remain what's called brand safe and an entity that brands want to engage with, someone that's not going to cause any controversy or any kind of issue for the brand. And so that means that influencers are presenting themselves in you know particular ways. For a long time, that meant you can't say anything about politics, religion, It was like you had to be totally apolitical. It's like you had no beliefs. (laughs) Now that has changed, particularly, you know, since 2020. Now influencers are sort of expected by their audiences and brands to an extent to sort of share more about their beliefs. But you still have to do it in a way that doesn't go too far, you know, and where that line is of going too far is Constantly shifting. People are incentivized to really play it as safe as can be in the way that they present themselves. And even when they're posting what's called organic content, something they just, a picture they took or video they made that they just wanted to do, even then, brands are still looking at that. So if you are an influencer or someone who is aspiring to be one, Everything that you post has to be looked at through that lens of what's brand safe and what is also going to keep me relevant in these algorithmically driven feeds when there's no transparency to the user, whether it's the user like us who might just be scrolling and looking or the user who's an influencer who relies on this for their income. They're constantly trying to create content that fits with like the, what they are perceiving as the current rules. So there's a lot of shaping that goes on that people are not really aware of. And then there's even more that I, <laughs> I can get into of how these deals are made and all of that. But that's what I would really like uh, the public to have a better understanding of. of, is that this is a complicated media advertising industry that is as complicated and probably more complicated than than the advertising relationship with our more traditional media industries.
0: What you're describing to me sounds to me or really describes an incredible tension between authenticity and artifice in this whole social media influencer industry. And a tension that has grown exponentially over the years so it it emerged with authenticity and the artifice has been growing sort of you know in opposition to it in it as an equal and opposite force over the years I mean would you agree with that
1: Yes and no. It's kind of interesting because, like I said, when we're when we're comparing to those early years when there was, you know, more truth to that authenticity of like these people are just people who fell into this, that was true. But at the same time, the content that was popular, especially at the dawn of like Instagram, you know, we're thinking like 2012, 2013, which is when the influencer industry starts like just growing massively year over year. The content that was popular at that time was pretty curated. It was really posed, really heavily edited. And so that was an interesting tension at that time, too. And now there it has almost like flipped where a lot of the popular content that we're seeing on Instagram and TikTok is like people. Looking like we look right now, like it's at your house or your office, and you know you're you're not overly posed, and you're not face full of makeup, and you know all all of that
0: pandemic style kind of, yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, exactly. And so a lot of content that we see now is much more quote unquote authentic, but it's not. It has the appearance of being more authentic because it, it isn't as obviously staged as as it used to be. But at the same time, the creators of that content are much, much, much savvier and much more hyper aware of what they are doing and the stakes that sort of govern what, how they are doing it. So there, I guess, is a, maybe more artifice behind In the in the strategizing and in the production of this content, because the content creators have to be so hyper aware at all times of what is expected of them by their audiences, by advertisers and um, by the algorithms that govern these feeds and that determine who and how many people are seeing their content.
0: And in, in your research how consistent are influencers about disclosing their partnerships, their endorsements, their ads? It's not super
1: consistent at the individual level, you know, like if an influencer is going to disclose like that is how they run their business and they're they're always going to disclose, they're always going to be, you know, doing things above board as much as they can. But if an influencer hasn't decided that that is how they're going to do things, then you really don't know what to expect. And that, that is a huge issue with the, with the influencer industry. It always has been an issue, but again, now the stakes are higher because the industry is so much larger now and it's sort of taken over our social media feeds. And also the way that cultural producers in other arenas you know so people who are still working at new newspapers and sites of cultural production it's changed how people think about content creation more generally so this industry has like no oversight the ftc has a really nice disclosures document if you know that it exists <laughs> you know and if you and if you are a person who wants to do everything above board and you seek it out It's great. You know, that's great. It's a really helpful document. And if, you know, any influencers who are listening to this, please go find it, Disclosures 101. But that's, that's kind of it. The FTC doesn't have the resources to go after everyone who's running afoul of of these rules. Your disclosures are supposed to be clear and conspicuous. It should be extremely obvious to the follower that, you know, when there is a commercial relationship, but there aren't typically consequences for people who don't follow this. you know the FTC has seems to be you know taking the strategy of we're gonna go after the big fish you know when Kim Kardashian messes up, we're gonna get her and, and make a public example of her to kind of scare people into into following along because they can't go after everyone. That is a huge flaw in this system, and beyond just the the clear and conspicuous disclosures uh, with actual sponsored content, there's a really muddy, if if not non-existent line between the sponsored and the not sponsored. Like I like I talked about before, you know, because these influencers always have to maintain their particular you know personal brand, uh, even when they're posting. Organic content. And so that is really muddy too. You know, I think like, so then the user who's seeing the content might think that, oh, this influencer just felt like doing this. Look how much fun they're having today doing this thing or, or whatever. But it's still staged to a degree. And so, so there isn't a lot of oversight. And then, of course, too, when we're talking about influencers who are positioning themselves as credible information. Providers, you know, not just people who are making giving you tips about what clothes to buy or trips to go on. There's enough issues with that, with the more lighter topics. But when we look at people who are purporting to be journalistic in some way um, and sharing, you know, purporting to share facts, expertise on, you know, obviously politics and public health are like the two big topics of the last couple of years. But it it goes, you know, in a variety of directions. These people have no oversight either. And they are not like, you know, the public can't look at them like a journalist because a journalist who works at a news organization has editors. <laughs> there are multiple eyes who are on that, that work before it gets published. Um, and that doesn't exist in the influencer industry. There is also in the journalism industry, there are also professional codes that people are expected to follow. And of course, there are people who run afoul of these, you know, there are bad actors in any any industry, but there are still professional expectations.
0: Young people in particular are increasingly getting their news and information from influencers on TikTok, Instagram, other platforms. So rather than more traditional news sources. So like, what are the risks of that?
1: There was some really interesting research that came out recently from Reuters, I believe it was, that said that young people are increasingly getting their information from influencers and trusting them more than traditional journalists. And you know, there's a lot of potential issues there. It would be great if people working in the news industry could find a way to communicate with these audiences where they are and still uphold the ideals and ethics that they, that they strive for. But along with that, I am concerned that young people who are getting their information this way are losing or not developing the, the ability to sort of discern different types of information? I haven't studied this specifically. I don't have my own research to cite here. It's just a sort of internal theorizing when I you know going off of the information that we do have. It's a very important skill to have to be able to discern not only f- fact from fiction but also news from opinion. And in the influencer space, this gets really muddled because, again, influencers are portraying their personalities in such a way um, and portraying themselves as these just like authentic providers of information who are just going to turn on the camera and chat to you about whatever's on their mind. And it's probably a mix of information <laughs> and editorializing and sometimes lies. And so that that is a real concern for me. Someone that I interviewed for my book, um, she was one of the last people I interviewed and she was someone, she was actually quitting um, in the process of like shutting down her really robust (laughs) influencing business because she had just grown tired of the self-commercialization, the harassment she faced, a number of things. But something she said really stuck with me, which is she said, in the influencer space, people are allowed to create content without context. And that I thought that was just so beautifully put. Um, and, And she was talking about how people sort of weave their personal narratives together with information and they sort of just can create this narrative, um, in a video that m- blends these things together in a way, in such a way that it becomes like a sort of unrecognizable, like what is a fact and what is this person's personal experience and what is this person's opinion and, um, what aspect of it is them just sort of performing their personality, uh, for us. And, and in that way it can become really insidious how, how information sort of, can become misinformation (laughs) and there's also this sort of blurring of the boundaries, you know, the same interviewee said something like, um, because she was, she was a healthcare provider. So she was um, talking about, you know, that context and she's saying, you know, someone is talking about vaccines and then they can just say, oh, and by the way, like somebody I know actually had had a vaccine injury. And so that makes me think that vaccines are, you know, bad and, you know, whatever it is. And so you can sort of weave these these really muddy narratives. And it sort of taps into our sort of human desire for connection, too, you know, when we're consuming these narratives. So it it just becomes really difficult. And so that's my concern.
0: And also with sponsored content, you have... Influencers potentially being paid by PR arms of companies to deliver content that is very restricted in what they're being exposed to for that company. You probably heard about the Sheehan controversy, whereas if that story, those kinds of stories were being done by journalists, you'd have a very different outcome Right, I don't know if you want to talk about that specific example or that issue.
1: Shein is a massive fast fashion company based in China that brings thousands of new styles to market every week, and so it's just churning, churning out, <laughs> churning out clothing, and has this massive global reach. It's at an extremely low price point; like we're talking like five, ten dollars uh, for an item. And it has been accused of having exceedingly poor working conditions for its workers and clothes being poor quality, you know, all these things. And so while it is massively successful in some ways, it, it, or in many ways, it also has like, you know, sort of a bad reputation in many ways as well. And so they uh, organized an influencer trip where they brought a bunch of, I believe they were all... U.S. based influencers to tour their factories, you know, allegedly, and, and create content uh, about how everyone's wrong about Shein and it's actually like an amazing place to work and it's great. And then when the when all this content went live, you know, of course there was a huge <laughs> controversy around it and people saying, you know, this was all staged and these influencers are you know lying to us or they were taken for a ride and all this. So there was a big controversy around this, this influencer campaign. And when I looked at this content, you know, I, yeah, I, I was just thinking these influencers are being taken advantage of and they were overwhelmingly young women who most likely were not Trained in investigative journalism, even though some of them likened themselves to to investigative journalists, um, and didn't have experience going on factory tours of major corporations, they most likely didn't know what to look for, and they were probably just super excited. I should have said too that Shein is like extremely popular on social media. It's like a huge, hugely popular brand, and so these influencers were probably super excited uh when they got this opportunity and also you know again it's like when you work as an influencer um you're not really incentivized to take a moment to reflect <laughs> or to say no to a brand that is waving money at you because you are you know you have to constantly hustle for for your next paycheck and it's a lot of work and so that's that's really what I saw when I looked at that content.
0: What advice do you have for consumers of social media influencer content for vetting that content?
1: It really depends on the type of content that you're consuming. It should be coming from a professional in some way so you're looking for health information you're looking for you know mental health information, dietary advice you know all, all of these sorts of things. I would be really careful to understand who the person is that you're listening to. What is their education on this topic? What are their credentials? Um, As sort of a baseline of like, should I listen to this person? Are they actually trained and knowledgeable in this field? But even if you're just looking for more lighthearted tips about travel planning or, or something like that, I would still be really cognizant of the fact that there is a huge, huge, huge enterprise behind this content that you're seeing. And it, it doesn't mean that everything is a lie, or that, uh, you know, you can't find any information, you know, in this way. But it does mean you need to be aware that people are crafting this content in strategic ways in ways that are different but still sort of reminiscent of the strategy that goes behind other content that you consume you know a movie doesn't just get made because someone woke up one day and said i'm going to make a movie uh about barbie you know there, it, it goes through many 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 iterations you know there's issues with funding and production and this you know people involved think of all that complexity and remember that there is that almost that level of complexity behind the scenes here that you're not seeing. And so, um, you know, take everything with a grain of salt and also be mindful of how your time spent, you know, with these influencers impacts you. It's an easy sort of habit to get into of following people or especially if you followed someone for a long time, it's like, they just become part of your feed (laughs) and, um, and, but I think it's important to be really mindful of how looking at this content makes you feel. And if something is making you feel bad about yourself is negatively impacting you, then unfollow. Stop, stop looking. And of course, I I have to throw in to be aware that the time that you're spending on this is making money for the for the apps that you're using and that you in a sense are Working when you're looking at this, so just keep all that in mind. It, it doesn't mean that you can't find entertainment and fun and information there, but it's it's really important to remember that it's not all fun and games.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. This has been really enlightening, and I think it's a really important part of being, you know, media literate, news literate, to really understand the machinations that go into social media influencing. It is such a huge part of our media landscape today. And it's very subtle in how much it's infiltrated our lives. And, um, you know, young people especially, but all of us really need to understand the ways in which it's, no pun intended, influencing us. Yes. (laughs) So thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much. (laughs) It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. Is that a fact? Is a production of the News Literacy Project, a nonpartisan education nonprofit, building a national movement to create a more news literate America. For more, go to newslit.org. I'm your host, Dara Warland. Our producer is Mike Webb, and our theme music is by Aaron Bush. And thanks to our podcast production partner, Rivet360. For more about them, go to rivet360.com.